All right, well, to get things started, I'm gonna throw out a discussion question. We're gonna have a little talk, so I'm gonna come down a little closer. I'm gonna pull up the live stream here in case you all wanna jump in. I can read your comments. Here we go. So, uh, yeah, it's good to have you guys online. If you wanna jump in, just uh, add your comments there. I want you to think for just a second, what's the worst job you've ever had, and what's the best job you've ever had? Doesn't have to be a career, it could just be a job, uh, maybe at home or otherwise, or it could be something that you got paid to do, or something you were a volunteer to do, but what's the worst job you ever had, and what's the best job you've ever had? Take just a few moments, um, especially for those internal processors, uh, to think about that. Take a second and think about that. Try to come up with at least one. All right, let's hear it. Uh, what's, uh, let's start with the worst job. Uh, let's, uh, what was the worst job you ever had? If you got one, just shout it out, yeah. Guessing people's weight at Zumbizi Bay? That, that, is, uh, that doesn't sound like a good job at all. Like you're really setting yourself up for, what? Is that like a carnival game? That game shouldn't exist. Like there's no way to win that game. You've already lost. Uh, someone said, working clothing retail. I second that. I worked at Sears when that was a thing, uh, selling tools, which I'd never used at that point. And old men would come in and ask me questions, and I had to pretend like I knew what I was doing, and then try to sell them credit cards. And these are all things I hate about life. Um, but anyways, yeah, that was terrible. Someone else. Worst job. You can't really beat that one, but that's, we'll try. I cleaned freshman dorms toilets once. That was fun. Anyone else? Worst job you ever had? Factory worker. Factory worker, yeah? Yeah? Whew. The endless grind. Yeah. Any others? Waitressing. Waitressing. I think about waitressing every once in a while, like when I'm receiving that service. Um, I try to put myself in their shoes, and I'm like, man, that stresses me out. This is way too much. And then they, some people do it, and they don't even take notes. It's like, remember what you ordered? I would. That would not work well for me. You would be getting the wrong order. Absolutely. Any others? Irrigation, digging holes. Digging holes. Like that novel, Holes, but you weren't looking for gold. Were they looking for gold in that novel? Yeah. Yeah, digging for leaking pipes, yeah. Probably in the hot sun or in the cold weather. Anytime you're in the elements, it can be tricky. Any others? Milking cows, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never done it. I imagine some people might enjoy that, but I can't imagine what that would be like. All right, best job you've ever had? Running a ropes course, yeah. You would be a really good ropes course coordinator. We should do that. You want to do a ropes course with us sometime? We can go, yeah, there's tons of them. Absolutely. I think you both would do a great job. Who wants to do ropes course at some point? Like high ropes? Can we do high ropes? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Put it on the agenda of someday. Other great jobs. Say it again. Prom store. So like selling prom dresses? All right. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That'd be good. Any other favorite jobs? Yeah. 
Dad. Uh, just in time for Father's Day. Yeah, good answer. Beat that. Someone's like, Mom. And someone else is like, Grandfather. I'm like, yeah, we get it. It's great. I don't know. That's one of my harder jobs, honestly. So. Ooh. Plus, anytime you're delivering something people really want, like, there's usually an exchange of joy involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, any others? All right, th- th- think for a second. What, um, what makes a job bad or hard or undesirable? Now, I want you to think, generally speaking, you don't have to name any names. But what makes a job difficult or bad or hard or something that you don't want? People. That's probably the number one reason. I, I hear that your work environment, the people you work with, really determines whether it's a meaningful job. Yeah. Any others? Low pay. Low pay. Yeah, you put in work, and you still can't afford what you need to afford. Yeah, and you have the added stress of, of money. Yeah. Yeah, meaning, meaninglessness, which is appropriate. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes here. That word shows up a few times. Yeah, just the sense of, like, you lack a sense of purpose, or, like, you know, what's the point? Others. High stress, yeah. Staying up at night, thinking about work when you, you know, like, that, that's when you know you have a stressful job, when you're thinking about work when you're not working. Oh, that's no fun. Management, which implies people. Managing people. Yeah. We're going to talk about a lot of these different things. In fact, you guys named a lot of the issues that uh, the Solomon or the teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to talk about why work, all kinds of work, whether it's a vocation or whether it's parenting or whether it's managing people or volunteering, can be at times deeply frustrating. And what we should do about that when it happens, uh, because we'll all be frustrated with work at some point. To help us do that, we are going to spend some time in the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom that's attributed to Solomon. So it's presented as a book that Solomon wrote, who was son of David, and he's king of Israel. So as king of Israel, he's extremely powerful and extremely wealthy. And so the book is written from this perspective of someone who had it all. Or if there was something they didn't have, they could get it because they had the money and they had the power to get it. So they had everything anyone would want at that time, and what some people still want today. And even though he had it all, he found it less meaningful than you would think. In fact, in chapter 2 of the book, he actually lists everything he had gained with his power and his wealth and how much it meant to him. He says this in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 10. He says this, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind was still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what it was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than any in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers 
and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. He's kind of just described a modern-day billionaire, don't you think? All right, so lots of amazing homes. He says he built all these building projects. Vineyards and vines, you know, a life of whining and dining. Gardens and parks and beautiful rolling hills. So not just nice houses, but beautiful views, you know. So he's got this beautiful homes, beautiful views, and he had people, lots of people working for him um, that made his life very comfortable, but even though they weren't receiving a living wage because they were, you know, at least he was honest about it, they were slaves. So he could give him credit for that. Lots of money. He had cattle, gold, and silver which was the currency of that day, and he had more than anyone else. He had entertainment, both male and female singers, probably dancers as well, and then women, lots of female companions, which was acceptable for a king at that time, but no less terrible, sort of a Jeff Epstein sort of situation going on here. And he didn't deny himself anything. If he saw it and he wanted it, he got it. You know, and if the boat doesn't fit under the bridge, he'll just pay for the bridge to be moved. You know, that's how it worked. That's how it worked when you are that rich and that powerful. He could grab anything he wanted the moment he saw it. And here's how he felt about it. Verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. All that for nothing. You got all that, got all, everything the world said he should want as a powerful man during this time, and it was like chasing after the wind. It meant nothing. I was curious to see whether wealth could actually make people happy, and of course, according to the surveys, it does. Um, so if you ask people who are wealthy, they find that there is some correlation between some sense of happiness um, and that Millionaires are a certain level of happy, and that the millionaires that have you know 100 million is even more so, and billionaires even more so happy. But but there's something about Solomon, and I got to give him credit for that. But even though he was like an ancient version of a billionaire, the richest in the land, he still found it meaningless. He he struggled to find meaning out of it. And so even though um, wealth can increase our happiness, and I think we should all have what we need. Here here's what I found. The more you walk with God and you study the things of God and you understand the heart of God, and you understand a heart of justice, which Solomon would have had, the, 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 the things of the world become less meaningful. I'll give you give an example, and, and, and this is at the risk of oversharing, so my apologies to all of you. I, um, I mentioned a few times, I grew up one of seven kids, we never had any money. And I know many of you have this, this experience as well, so you can relate. You, know, you, you, didn't, you couldn't just go buy whatever you saw. Um, I grew up not being able to buy anything I saw. Um, you can't do that when you have seven kids. Finn, we tell him no, not because we can't afford it, but because we just can't say yes every time, right? Because we're trying to be good parents. Um, and so we have to tell him no. But he, you know, he does get quite a bit of what he see, but we just went to the grocery store, you just went to the store to shop for my birthday present, and he wanted everything in the store, right? He said, want that, want that. Um, when we watch television together, and there's commercials, and we watch a kid's show, so there's kid's commercials, um, if it's anything kid-related, he's like, I want that. So he wants everything he sees. And I grew up where that wasn't even a possibility. There just wasn't money for it. 
But now, Melissa and I both work full time, and I'm not, I don't really want that many things. And so, generally speaking, if I see something and I want it, I get it. And I've done that quite a bit in the last year. I see something that I want, and I go buy it. And a couple of things that were very meaningful for a long time, I've been wanting this, this flameless fire pit. Yeah, it's a fire pit, but uh, smokeless. Uh, smokeless, thank you. Sm yeah, yeah. Smokeless fire pit. I'm off script here a little bit. This is just, I'm working from an outline today. Not, not, not the whole sermon, but just this story. So we got this, uh, it's called a solo stove. You put the wood in, it burns so hot, there's no smoke. We don't like the smell of smoke. Alyssa definitely doesn't like it. I don't like it. We don't like to take a shower after a fire pit. We get it. Um, and I don't want to get it because it's too expensive, but I get 45% off, and it's my birthday. I'm getting this thing, right? So I get it, and I love it. And you know what? Uh, did not increase my meaning in the world, having it, compared to a few other things. I'm going to share another story. It might sound like I'm bragging. I'm not bragging. It's, it's, I promise, it, I don't think that highly of myself, if I'm honest. Um, I had this weird goal. Have you ever been at a grocery store where um, someone's got all of their groceries out on the, on the, on the what do you call that? Conveyor, <laughs> Conveyor belt. And, and then they, don't, they can't afford it, or they forgot their card. And so they start putting all the groceries back in, or maybe they've rung them up already, and then they just sit in a cart and they leave. Well, for the longest time, once again, I didn't have the money. And I've experienced this a number of times. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I never had the money. I couldn't jump in. I've never had the money where it's like, hey, I just pay for somebody's groceries, whether they can pay me back or not, because I couldn't do that without first looking at my, my checking account to see if you know I had $100 extra to spend. Like That's how I've lived most of my life. And a couple of years ago, that changed as I became older and more comfortable financially. And I said, you know, I can do this. And so a couple of times, I ran into this situation. And somebody had put all their groceries on the conveyor belt. And I knew that if I stepped in, I could just pay for it. Like, I could afford to do that. But, but I also don't like talking to strangers, because <laughs> it's socially awkward. And two different times, it happened, and I didn't do anything. And I eventually said to myself, i got to do something the next time. So two weeks ago. Somebody got up there, they had all their stuff, and they realized they didn't have their debit card. And they hadn't checked out yet. Still it. And so they start putting it back in the cart, and this is like my moment, you know? This is what I've been waiting for, and I'm like talking to strangers though, so I'm real nervous. And I awkwardly get this guy's attention and tell him I'm just gonna pay for the group. And I'm like, you can pay me back if you want, you know? Like, I'm, it, it, you know, because I'm not trying, I mean, whatever's, whatever they wanna do, I'm like fine with it. And I awkwardly just say, like, not a worry. I, I pay for the groceries. I make what feels like a fool of myself. And I tell him he can pay me back, because he wants to pay me back. So he's got Cash App. I don't have Cash App. And Alyssa has something, like Venmo, or I don't know. I don't know what these apps are. And uh, so we don't have the same apps. And so I'm walking out. I'm texting Alyssa, like, I'm buying this guy's groceries, you know, which is like a life goal of mine. And uh, she's like, well, you can just, like, pay for it. It was only like $100 or something like that. And so I said, hey, man, it's your lucky night. We don't have the same app, so it's, it's yours. And I walked out. I share that story to say this. That was more exciting than the solo stove. You, you hear what I'm saying? That's why I share that story. Like, that was, as awkward as I am talking to strangers, that was way more fun and way more meaningful and actually cost me less than the solo stove, if I'm honest with you. And will be a memory that I hold on to forever. So this is my experience, that yeah, if you're at a place, and I imagine many of us are at a place where if you really want something, you could probably get it in the near future. I have found, me personally, like Solomon, that that doesn't necessarily add a lot of meaning to my life. It doesn't necessarily make it evil. 
I don't feel like I need to repent that I bought a solo stove. That's not where I'm at. I'm just saying that paying for a random person's groceries is something different. It reminds me of this prayer. I was talking with somebody um, about how they never felt like God was answering their prayers. And I, in the context of this conversation, I was just saying, you know, it kind of depends on, you know, what prayer you're asking. You know, if you're asking God for a spouse, for example, some people pray for a, a spouse. Um, it's very, some, or, or for a child, something very big. That's hard, and that's complicated, and like, I don't know how God always reacts or why things happen the way they do. I don't fully understand how all that works. But I said, but if you ask for somebody that you could be, you know, that you could help out, God seems to really be quick to answer those prayers. And they become really meaningful. And so that's what I'm trying to say. The, all of this to say, he, let, he puts all of this work into building this huge empire, and he finds it meaningless. In fact, that's what he says right at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes. He says, this is the beginning of the book, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. This is the first quote from the book is the word meaningless. Imagine if I had started my sermon this way. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless, and you all are going to be like, hey, Joe, we do have a mental health fund if you need to see someone. But why is it meaningless? And what's the source of his struggle? Well, he said it here in, uh, back in chapter 2, as well as in, he'll say it in chapter 1. He says this, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. That's why it's meaningless. Everything he gained by working hasn't produced the value he hoped for in his life. His work life is the problem. And that's what he says here in chapter 1, verse 3. After he says everything is meaningless, he says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? So somehow, at the root of this issue is work. The act of accomplishing something. He has found his work uh, to be unfulfilling. And when he tries to enjoy the pleasures that come from the work, the fruit of his labor, all the things he can buy or secure, he finds them unfulfilling too. So this book, in a lot of ways, is a book about work. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to look and discuss how work can become a source of deep frustration in our lives and, and how we can find meaning in our work if only we are able to shift our perspective a little bit. So let's, to do that, we're going to start with a definition. Here's what Webster, here's how Webster defines work. Work, an activity in which one exerts strength or uh, faculties to do or perform something. An activity that a person engages in regularly to earn a livelihood, a specific task, duty, function, or assignment, often being a part of a phase, part or phase of some larger activity, and the sustained physical or mental effort to overcome obstacles and achieve an objective or result. That's how Webster defines work. Work is all about accomplishing something, seeing a problem or an obstacle and overcoming it whether it be responding to a memo at work or unloading the dishwasher, washer, you know, work is overcoming some kind of problem or task. And here's the thing about work. We were created for work. In the opening chapters of the Bible, where we hear this beautiful story about how God is creating and really how God is working, He's moving the sea and putting it here, and he's putting the land over there, and he's pulling up from the ground these plants, and he's breathing life into the animals, and he builds this man out of pottery and then breathes life into them. God's doing all of this work. And he says this about the humans that he created 
God said, bless them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And mixed into this poetic language is a simple truth that in paradise, Adam and Eve would work, that they had jobs to do. It's an interesting perspective. We forget that work was a part of paradise. Um, we, we often speculate what heaven might be like or what the new kingdom of God might be like or if God really had God's way, what well, work would still be a part and is still a part of the kingdom of God. God created paradise and gave them jobs in paradise. Before the fall, before brokenness, before greed, work was a part of paradise. Work was a blessing and so work can be good. Of course, it doesn't stop there. The story goes on. Humans break paradise with their selfishness, greed, and pride. You might know the story of Adam and Eve and in the garden and the snake and the fruit. And it's a story about greed. God gave them everything, but they wanted more. It's a story about pride. God gave them the breath of life, but it wasn't good enough to have the breath of life. They wanted to be like God. And it was about desire. They, They saw something they wanted, and they took it, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes. They saw what they wanted, and they grabbed it without restraint. And one of the primary consequences of this is found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. God curses, not Adam and Eve, interestingly enough, the ground. You have to remember that. The, the curse isn't on humans. It's, it's, it's sadly on the earth. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until the return of the ground, since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and dust you will return. Their work becomes toil, becomes hard. And the word is introduced here that, that, that you might have noticed. It, toil is a word. It's not referring to work anymore. It's toil. And toil is something else. Webster defines it as this, the long, strenuous, fatiguing labor. So work becomes burdensome, burdensome all the way to the point you do it your whole life and then eventually your life is over and you return to the earth. And that is now the world we live in. We put all this work and it's the same today and tomorrow and the next day and it never ends and eventually you rest in the grave, which is fairly depressing. But I'm guessing that many of us have had jobs that feel like this. Now, many of us, we've maybe gone to school for a long time to do something that we love. That's me. I love my job, I, I, most days anyways. But I also know that, that I have bad days, just like you have bad days, and not everything about my job is a walk in the park. And I know that there are some people here who are still looking for a meaningful job or to find life in a general frustrating, or re- regardless of your career, life can be frustrating. All the work you do to make the world a better place just feels like it's not changing quick enough. And you're discouraged, and you're overwhelmed as you engage in issues of justice, and you, you serve families at little bottoms, and it doesn't seem to be making that big of a difference sometimes. And it's just this ongoing frustration of work But I'm here to tell you that it's not as bad as it seems. And as depressing as Ecclesiastes can sound, it's not as depressing as it sounds either. And there's hope. And this uh, this is how I want to explain it. There's a couple things we need to know about Ecclesiastes. And and so we're just going to set up the series today. I'm going to give you some very significant, like, top-level perspective of Ecclesiastes, one way to understand Ecclesiastes as a book. And it can be summarized by a simple phrase. We'll put it up on the screen here. All toil is meaningless. Right? There's three key words that we have to understand in order to understand um, this book. The words are all, and toil, 
and meaningless. So let's walk through those very quickly. The book of Ecclesiastes is more of a book of ideology than it is of theology. In other words, it's, it's really a book about ideas. Whereas some books can be read as if a pastor is telling you, to, you know, how to live your life, Ecclesiastes is more like sitting down with a philosopher who tries to confuse you and stretch your mind. And it's designed to make us think it's a wisdom book. So it, it's not really directly about faith as much as it's about daily life, making sense of our life. And, and, and just as it's not really for only people of faith. This book of ideas is unique in that it's written specifically, it isn't written specifically for the people of God. Most books of the Bible were given and written specifically for the people of God and what it means to be a person of God. But this book seems to be written for the world in general, for all people. In fact, one of the most common words in this book is the word all. Compared to the number of times it appears in the Bible overall, it's found in Ecclesiastes substantially more than any other book. And according to the New International Bible Commentary, it's found in 41% of the 222 verses of this book. It's consistently talking about all, as in everything. It applies to all people, in all times, in all places, in all situations, everything. It says everything is meaningless for everyone. All. It's this idea that this book speaks to this universal truth that you can see play out in the world regardless of who you are or what you believe. And this is important because the advice that it's going to give isn't necessarily just for followers of God. We'll discuss that in a couple weeks. The second word is toil. The second thing you need to realize is that this book is about work. You see, the book is uh, about a particular kind of work. The Hebrew word for toil appears 55 times in the Bible, and 22 of those times are right here in Ecclesiastes. Now, this word for toil is not the same as, as used in Genesis when it talks about the work God did in creating the world and the work God calls us to in caring for the garden. When God told us to work six days and rest the seventh, this word for toil has nothing to do with this goal-oriented occupations. It's the kind of work that is filled with frustration and pain and trouble and sorrow. It's the kind of work that you wouldn't want in paradise, but as we'll see, it's the kind of work that we often have to deal with. Now, um, work is when you exert energy, whether it's physical, mental, for the purpose of accomplishing the task. Toil, the kind of work Ecclesiastes talks about, is when you exert energy with no promise or hope of accomplishing anything. So work is good, but toil is bad. That's a big part of this book. And the last one, which is very important, is the word vanity or meaninglessness. Um, The New Testament translates it as meaningless. Um, But there are a couple ways to understand this. The first way to understand meaningless is that that nothing in life is worth the work, That, 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 that everything is meaningless, which is how the NIV translates it, which has led some people to suggest that Solomon was depressed, which is a fair assessment. It's entirely possible. I'm here to say that there's nothing wrong with that. If he was depressed when he wrote this book, what a great testimony that is, that God could use somebody who struggles with depression to write one of the books in both the Hebrew and Christian Bibles. And if you've ever been depressed, well, I'm here to tell you, God could still use you too. Maybe you've got an Ecclesiastes um, in your belt. And I love that. But some people read Ecclesiastes as if it's this musings of someone who's suffering from depression. And I hear it every once in a while. Um, it's as if the book was written by Eeyore. I don't know. Can we, can we show that clip real quick? You guys remember Eeyore? Man, I love Eeyore. Good morning, Pooh Bear. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. However, did I get your tail back on properly, Eeyore? No matter. 
most likely lose it again anyway. Poor dear. You know, I may have just the thing. Up, up, up you go. <laughs> there you are. It's an awful nice tale, Kanka. Much nicer than the rest of me. It's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it. Not much of a house. Just right for not much of a donkey. <laughs> Might take a day or two, but I'll find a new one. End of the road. Nothing to do. And no hope of things getting better. Sounds like Saturday night at my house. Like heartbreaking. Oh, thank God that that character exists. Maybe you've felt like uh, Eeyore before, and um, you can almost read this book in that context. It's probably all meaningless, anyways. And that's one way to read the book. But I want to warn you if, you, if you read it this way, you might be tempted to say, well, he was just depressed. I've heard people say this. Solomon was just depressed. And I don't know if this is what they mean, but this is how I read it. When you say that, I, what I hear them saying is he was just depressed, so what he writes about life isn't helpful or accurate. And, and this one I have a problem with. When I hear people say the writer was clearly depressed, I almost feel like a desire to defend him, as if being depressed would disqualify him from his wisdom, and it doesn't. So I caution you against this bias. Depressed people have a lot to offer the world and a lot to teach us. People who struggle with depression are worth listening to, learning from, period, hard stop. And it's fine to read the book from this vantage point as long as you're not using it as some kind of excuse to write it off, as if he must not know what he's talking about because he's just depressed. He knew what he was talking about, and this book is filled with amazing wisdom that thousands of years later is still terribly uh, and depressingly at times relevant. So that's one way to read it. Here's another way to understand meaningless, meaningless or as uh, some translate, vanity. Translators haven't always agreed on what to, it means or how to translate the word meaningless to the English because there isn't really an English equivalent. This word comes from uh, the Hebrew word for vapor or breath. And the idea behind this word plays off of the phrase that you see often in the book, the chasing after the wind, grasping for air. It's something that, in other words, is unattainable, not something that you can fully understand or grasp. And so some scholars suggest that the real sense of this word is the idea that life and work is absurd. Not meaningless, just absurd. In other words, incomprehensible. It's meaningless in, not, in that no matter how smart you are, you can't always make sense of it. It's not meaningless in that there isn't meaning, but rather meaningless in that you can't get meaning out of it. In, in this way, he wasn't depressed. He was just honestly critiquing the nature of reality, that life, this life we live, sometimes when you really think about it, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand. This, I, can't, I can't figure out why this happened. There isn't an answer to every why question in the world, and if someone could help Finn understand that, that would be great. <laughs> There isn't always an answer to why. But whether it's absurd or, you know, because we can't make meaning out of it or depressing, I could say this. It's probably a little bit of both. Um, we can't always make sense out of life. And for us, sometimes that can make us depressed. So all toil is meaningless can be summarized in this. And this is the, the thesis of the book that we're going to look at. Everyone at some point experiences life that is painful and lacks purpose. And when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't always make sense, and sometimes it feels like there's no way out. 
That's what this book's going to have to do. And, and I think there's some real truth to that. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at six different frustrations that, that, the, that the King Solomon articulates around work. And we're going to spend a week on, on uh, two at a time and walk through frustrations that, even though they're written thousands of years ago, are extremely relevant to our day today. In fact, you all named most of them when I asked you what makes work frustrating. It has to do with people, meaninglessness, and a variety of other topics that Solomon nails extremely well. So with that, um, uh, let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We ask that you would be help with us on this journey as we uh, wrestle with what it means to have work that is meaningful and how to survive those times in our life where we feel like um, things just aren't working out the way we want in our life and in our work. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.